You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I was given a topic to talk about oral uh, mucocutaneous disease, and that's fine. I'm happy to do that. I think you need to understand that everything that you will see in the mouth on oral examinations, we will not talk about today. Uh, There's a whole world of oral pathology, but we're going to focus more on the mucocutaneous stuff. This is new for me, Uh, never too old to learn, but it's my understanding we're supposed to do a pretest. What percent of your patients can be expected to be asymptomatically excreting HSV in their saliva uh, at clinically relevant levels? These are your normal patients. Very good. We have, we have some work to do. What percent of patients harbor candidal species asymptomatically in the oral cavity? <laughs> Room for improvement. Disquamative gingivitis. I hope you even know what that means, but it can be caused by everything on your list except one. All right, this is really going to be fun. The most common oral allergen that our patients put in their mouth to which they react. Very good. And uh, the underlying basis for aphthous ulcers, the most common mucosal disease in the world. Very good. We'll see if we can improve on those as we go through. I'm going to talk a little bit about infectious stomatitis as well as immune-mediated non-infectious stomatitis, but let's start first. Uh, clearly, huge overlap between the derm world and the oral path world with the herpes viruses. Uh, these are unique viruses in that most viruses we get into our body, we mount an immune response to that virus, we actually neutralize it and rid the body of it. And all of the herpes viruses are unique in that once you get them into into your body, they're characterized by latency and dormancy. And we never get rid of these viruses. Everyone sitting in this room is harboring some of these viruses asymptomatically. They go places where they're sequestered from our immune system. And most of them sit there asymptomatically to never produce disease. But they all have the potential to to be reactivated to produce recurring patterns of disease. Uh, I'm going to focus mostly on simplex. That's where the primary target is the oral cavity. Uh, The great majority of our patients who are first exposed to this virus 
nothing happens to them. They don't get sick. You have no idea you've been exposed to the virus. Uh, only about 1% to 2% of patients on first exposure get violently ill. This is a systemic infection, so these patients are going to have systemic effects. They're all going to be febrile. That's an important physical finding in the diagnosis. Uh, the, this is one of the few reactions that is very acute in its clinical onset. Within 24 to 48 hours, your mouth absolutely breaks down. They come in quite painful. Uh, and then the pattern involvement is very unique for viral infection. Within a couple of days, their mouth breaks down. Uh, it is a vesiculobullous disease intraorally. We rarely see the blisters because they're very thin-roofed and they're going to break. We're going to see the result of the breakage of those blisters. And in areas, these coalesce and run together, and these areas look a little bit less specific to me. But what you're looking for are patterns of individual little sharply marginated ulcers. This is very unique to viral infection. Uh, and suggest what the underlying cause of the reaction is. In the background, you're going to see the body's reaction to that infection, which, of course, is going to be inflammation and erythema. We're going to talk in just a minute about site specificity, but with primary herpes, you're going to get this reaction everywhere. It's all over the oral cavity. It's usually somewhat symmetrically and bilaterally distributed. But again, you can see those areas of your individual little sharply marginated ulcers. Uh, we're going to get this pan orally. It's extremely painful. This, to me, is almost unique to viral infection. We do see Coxsackie infections that will look a little bit like this. Uh, but this pattern of involvement really does suggest viral etiology. You can actually see a little blister here, but we usually can't see those clinically. Uh, the acute onset, uh, and particularly if they're febrile, the two most common things that we will see clinically with acute onset that will mimic this is erythema multiforme, Stephen Johnson, and obviously if you get the skin lesions, but those are usually afebrile as well as systemic allergies where they're usually afebrile. Uh, most Patients are exposed to this virus at an early age, so usually we're talking about children, particularly in the United States where living conditions are better. We frequently see this in adults. Uh, this patient was 37 years of age. The oldest patient I've seen with primary herpes is 72. So we can see these in our adult patients where the diagnosis becomes a little bit more challenging. Uh, the unique thing about the virus is it is neurotropic. Uh, most everybody here probably knows the nerve that supplies the oral cavity is trigeminal. It's going to run up trigeminal nerve intracranially inside foramen ovale. And for most of us who harbor this virus, it's in the trigeminal ganglion. Uh, it does have the ability to be reactivated to produce recurring patterns of disease about 90% of the time. It's at the junction of the lip and the skin. It is vesiculobullous, and we sit, we'll see the little blisters out here on skin more frequently than we see intraorally. Uh, clinicians will sometimes confuse these with aphthous ulcers. You only get those on mucosa inside the lip. We get the herpes on the outside of the lip, so you shouldn't confuse this with an aphthous ulcer. Uh, this, for you guys, is routine and bread and butter and probably not a diagnostic challenge. There's not a lot, once again, in the differential. It's going to crust in a couple of days. Uh, the pathologic effect is within keratinocytes, so it stays pretty superficial, and they heal on their own without any underlying scarring. Uh, you can get a little bit away from the oral cavity, 
but this should be a relatively straightforward clinical diagnosis. Uh, at the vesicular stage, uh, these lesions are teeming with viral DNA. This is probably one of the most infectious they are to us as clinicians. It's the intraoral form of recurrent herpes. That's the more of the diagnostic challenge because our clinicians do confuse these with aphthous ulcers or canker sores. And this is where the site specificity comes in. Uh, with the exception of immunosuppression, we only see recurrent intraoral herpes on mucosa bound down to bone on mucoperiosteum. So we're only going to get them on palate or attached gingiva. The pattern is still unique for viral infection. We're looking for some areas of those multiple individual sharply punched out lesions. Again, they're acute and they're onset. Within a day or two, they're going to come in with a very painful mouth. Uh, you will not get aphthous ulcers in this site. Uh, these are also going to heal without scarring, usually within about a week or 10 days. Uh, they called us down at school because they thought the denture might be rubbing in the palate. But it's hard for me to imagine how a denture could rub here but not here and here but not here. This is really the pattern again of viral involvement. And a cytologic smear was done here, and that was herpes. Uh, AIDS at least transformed our profession in terms of infection control should have been done by hepatitis, but it wasn't. Uh, but this used to be uh, an occupational hazard for us where we would get this in our hands. Uh, this, of course, is the herpetic Whitlow, and the gloves and the barrier techniques that we use today will prevent this. So keep wearing. It's a dental student in Houston. Uh, you can also get this in your eye, and of course the bad thing about getting it in your fingers and eyes, uh, the virus never goes away here. And for the rest of your professional life, uh, you're going to get recurring bouts of that infection. Uh, this was one of your pretest things that we know that a patient doesn't need to be in your practice with an active fever blister for them to transmit this disease to us. That at any point, uh, we know that most people will excrete this virus at some point in their life, but at any given point in time, around 5% of our patients have virally detectable HSV in their saliva, and there is no doubt about this. This is clinically relevant. They are infectious to us, and most of us probably will contract this from a patient that we're clueless that they've got active herpes. Uh, we can blow the DNA of this up now through PCR and find out that about a third of our patients at any point in time have detectable viral DNA in their saliva. There is some debate about whether that's enough viral load to be clinically relevant, but it doesn't matter. If 5% are infectious, we just assume that all of our patients are potentially infectious to us. The virus produces its damage in keratinocytes, and it produces very unique cellular changes. Uh, for us in clinical practice, I think the diagnosis is usually made strictly from the clinical features, and we simply treat. If there is any doubt, probably the most effective way to confirm your diagnosis is through cytological smear. It's very easy to smear some of these cells on a slide and look at them. And these are normal keratinocytes with a relatively small nucleus. And what we're looking for is the viral cytopathic effect of HSV. And this is, these are intranuclear inclusions. This is the DNA actually in the nucleus of the virus producing what appears to be a multinucleated cell that is quite enlarged or ballooned up and very characteristic and diagnostic of HSV. Uh, they also said to insert through here uh, just questions to make sure everybody's awake. 
your first question on this content is HSV remains latent where? Very good. 84% of you are awake. The only other thing we see with any frequency on the infectious side with oral pathology are infections by candida. Uh, this is the clinical subclassification that most people worldwide use. Uh, I'm only going to talk about the two most common ones for you. Uh, but we very, very frequently see infectious stomatitis that now aren't caused by a virus but caused by a fungus. We can culture candida in about 50% of our patients, and that is still true. The assumption was the other 50% didn't have them, and we now know that is not true. With PCR and blowing up the DNA signal, we now know that virtually 100% of you and your patients harbor this organism as part of your normal oral flora. It's an organism of incredibly low virulence. It doesn't produce disease in healthy people. There needs to be something wrong with you to provide an opportunity for the bug to grow. And this is one of the prototype opportunistic infections. So these patients who get candidosis, they didn't catch it from somebody. It just gets activated because it's there normally. It's a biphasic organism. Uh, the commensal form is the yeast form, and when it produces disease, it elongates into the hyphae form. Normally, this is a clinical diagnosis also to us, but one of the advantages of cytology is we can actually see that it's in the pathogenic form, uh, and it is a biphasic fungus. Uh, predisposing factors, you're probably familiar with those. Top of the list is anything that produces immunosuppression whether that's a disease, whether it's the medications we use. I'm going to talk about topical steroids that we use frequently intraorally, and one of the predictable side effects of using that intraorally is secondary candidosis. So we monitor for that. Uh, diabetes, uh, xerostomia, there's some really protective things in saliva. So we have a lot of patients who are dry mouth, and they're prone to develop this. Uh, any debility from other things in addition to immunosuppression, broad-spectrum antibiotics, but those are some of the predisposing factors. This is the most characteristic of the clinical forms. It is an infection. It is almost always going to be symptomatic. So they're going to come in with pain. Uh, the most characteristic form is when we get these slightly raised yellowish-white plaques, and what we're looking at as clinicians are clumps of dead cells. Anything that produces necrosis will produce whiteness. Chemical burns produce whiteness, and we can scrape off. Candida produces whiteness because it kills the keratinocytes. Candida is unique in that it grows right on the surface of our mucosa. It doesn't get down in our tissue. Those are the deep fungal infections. And as it grows on the surface, it kills the keratinocytes, and normally they would desquamate and we would swallow them, but they get matted together by the hyphae of the organism. And those hyphae will clump the cells. Some of those hyphae anchor those into normal mucosa. So these do scrape off with some difficulty, but they do scrape off. And hence we call this the pseudomembranous form of candidosis. In the background, you'll see the body's reaction to that infection. That, again, is going to be the erythema or the inflammation. 
This one of my patients on fluosinonide gel. We're treating them for erosive lichen planus. And when they call on the phone and say they're not doing too well, do not make therapeutic decisions on the telephone. We need to see these patients. And what we've done is produce secondary candidosis. And so we do manage this. We stop the steroid. We treat them therapeutically for the candidosis. We then reinstitute the steroid and usually have them suck on one mycelex a day, occasionally two. And that's enough to prevent the secondary candidosis. At the cellular level, this is what's going on. These are the dead keratinocytes, and they don't float off because they're anchored together by the hyphae of the organism, and they will anchor those into mucosa. Uh, This is what we're removing when we scrape it, and what is left is the body's reaction to that infection, which essentially is inflammation or redness. And this is just the typical pseudomembranous candidosis. And this is four or five passes with a tongue blade. You can scrape this with anything that's rigid. And it doesn't scrape off like food debris, but you can tell that most of that comes off. Patient comes back in 10 days, asymptomatic, and is completely happy with your therapy. And I would argue that as long as there is any objective evidence that the body is still reacting, we continue to treat these patients, even though they're asymptomatic. This is the most common cause for recurrence, and we don't quite quite treat them long enough, so we'll usually treat these for several days after they become asymptomatic and there's no evidence of disease. There's a chronic atrophic form of candidosis, and this is particularly in patients who wear dentures, and they wear their dentures 24 hours a day. We don't see this under a lower denture, but only under an upper denture, and they leave that in 24 hours a day. There's no salivary clearance under there, and it's moist, it's quiet, it's dark, and it's an ideal environment for the bug to grow. There's not room for the pseudomembranes to build up, but what we will see clinically is reaction to that infection. So this turns red, and we refer to this as the chronic atrophic form of candidosis. Angular colitis, about 80 to 90% of the time. This is caused by candidal species. If it's not candida, it's usually strep or staph. But you can get angular colitis with any of the intraoral forms of candidosis or all by itself. If they have intraoral disease, we treat the intraoral candidiasis and the commissures will clear. Uh, If it's only at the commissures, we treat this with topicals. Uh, This patient complained of the angular colitis. And so our diagnosis is straightforward. We look in and everything looks fine. But here's what's driving the infection, uh, the atrophic form of candidosis under that denture. So you're going to need to treat this in order to get the commissures to clear. Uh, This is just to show you this has nothing to do with plastic. Uh, This is a physical occlusion of your mucosa. Median rhomboid glossitis are those little atrophic Red areas on mid-dorsal tongue, they can be symptomatic or asymptomatic. We used to think this was developmental until they went out and looked at 10,000 children and couldn't find a single example. And they got people to looking, and this is now viewed as an atrophic form of candidosis also. I can't tell you why mid-dorsal tongue preferentially colonizes this area, but it does. And this, to me, is a clinical diagnosis. We still call it median rhomboiglossitis, but we consider this and treat this as an atrophic form of candidosis. In functioning, as you elevate your tongue and it contacts palate, we frequently will see transfer of the infection between both anatomic sites. Uh, And again, you would probably expect something like that with an infectious etiology. 
Uh, this to me is normally a clinical diagnosis. We would just treat this, uh, but if it does get biopsied, we can demonstrate the organisms which are the driving cause of that infection. So again, uh, most of these, we just treat these with antifungals. If they go away, we're correct, and if not, we then switch to antibacterials. These are either staph or occasionally strep. These can be bilateral, and again, are driven predominantly by candidal species. Uh, I alluded earlier, I think the diagnosis is usually relatively straightforward and clinical, so we simply make the diagnosis and treat these. This is another one. If there's any doubt about the diagnosis, a cytologic smear is less invasive than biopsy, and because the organisms grow on the surface, they're very amenable to cytologic smear, and we not only get the dead cells off, but we can see the hyphae of the organisms. So our intra-lecture test question is the white pseudomembranes resulting from candidosis are the result of what? Very good. I really need to try this with my own students. Half of them would be asleep by now. But... That's really quite good. Let's talk about the non-infectious forms of stomatitis. I would argue you can't practice your profession without seeing patients with geographic tongue. Etiology is still unknown. This is not infectious. You didn't catch it. You can't give it to anybody. Uh, the tongue is inflamed, so it is appropriately named. There is a, really is a glossitis, but we're not sure why it's inflamed, so the etiology is unknown. We get little depapillated areas that will heal on their own, only to pop up over here, and that'll heal, and it pops up over here. And it gives the illusion this is moving or migrating. It clearly is not but very characteristic clinical pattern and natural history. We do see lesions not confined to tongue, and we can't use these names then. Uh, we just call it erythema migrans. They're going to look the same. And this is another thing uh, that is very straightforward. Uh, the dermatolo my dermatologist is the chairman of the department and a very good friend. They rotate their residents through both our clinics as well as some of them want to sit through our search path conferences. Uh, but this is one of the derm residents a number of years ago. And you're probably aware of this, that there is some relationship of geographic tongue with psoriasis. It looks remarkably similar clinically. Uh, I'm not convinced this is the same disease. We do see intraoral psoriasis. Uh, but as you manage the psoriasis, the geographic tongue isn't going to respond. So even though there is a relationship, uh, some people think this is simply the same disease, and I'm not convinced of that. What you're looking at are little areas of depapillation where we get atrophy of the papillae on the tongue. These can be anywhere from normal colored to red, and the most characteristic thing are these yellowish-white borders that exactly marginate and define your lesions. And the only other thing that would look like this is Reiter's syndrome, which with AIDS not seeing the oral manifestations as much anymore, we really don't see much writers intraorally. So this to me is a relatively straightforward clinical diagnosis, very unique clinical presentation, and usually multiple lesions and usually asymptomatic. Three weeks later, and it does tend to be fairly dynamic and it does appear to be moving around, but there really is nothing else 
that looks like this. Uh, many times we get them on lateral and dorsal, occasionally on ventral, but not very commonly. Uh, Sometimes the borders are thicker than others, but the circinate kind of rounding borders marginating those lesions. We can get these on labial mucosa and other sites. They still have the erythema and the same pattern uh, with the little circinate borders and another one back in throat. Most patients with these lesions off of tongue will also have geographic tongue, so look closely at their tongues. Uh, that may help you determine what this is, but they'll have some subtle lesions on the tongue. The asymptomatic ones we don't treat, not associated with anything systemic, doesn't evolve into anything serious. Uh, we just tell the patient the diagnosis and we do treat the symptomatic ones. This is just what it looks like histologically. Uh, it is inflamed. What we don't know is why it's inflamed. Uh, and it does have a little bit of a psoriasiform pattern microscopically. Uh, we teach our clinicians that if there is a question about the diagnosis, there are some unique histologic features. We can make this diagnosis microscopically. And these are neutrophils that migrate through the epithelium, and you get these almost subcorneal little microabscesses. Uh, very unique for geographic tongue and diagnostic. And just... Lichen planus, uh, bread and butter for you. And you can't practice without seeing and diagnosing this, and neither can we. In our stomatology center, they're up over 1,000 patients they've managed with lichen uh, in our clinics. And this is one of the most common of all the cutaneous diseases that we deal with that affects intraoral oral mucosa. So we deal with this with some frequency. We make the distinction between lichenoid reactions, and there's a variety of things that are not lichen planus, but cause the body to react in a pattern that looks like lichen planus, so we call them lichenoid reactions. And before we ever treat somebody for lichen planus, we make sure we're not dealing with a lichenoid reaction. Top of the list are systemic medications, and you're probably familiar with most of those. Uh, quite frankly, the oral lichenoid drug reactions don't look like classic reticular lichen planus. They more typically are ulcerated. They more typically affect anatomic sites not as commonly affected by lichen planus. But at least we think of drugs. Dental restorative materials, particularly the silver fillings, the amalgam. If you have something that's striate and looks like lichen planus, but you only have one lesion and it's right next to a silver filling, it's probably a reaction to the restorative material. It's probably not true lichen planus. Hypersensitivity reactions can look a little bit lichenoid. We frequently ask, I'm going to talk about cinnamon in a minute. That is our most common allergen. We see that with great frequency. And you need to be aware that premalignant lesions, both clinically and microscopically, can look a little bit like lichen planus. There's a little bit of subtle stria sometime in dysplasia. Uh, in general, the most important thing here, lichen planus for all practical purposes is always multifocal. Premalignant lesions are invariably going to be single isolated lesions. So if you've got a single lesion, we're not thinking lichen planus, even if it looks like lichen planus. Uh, Man, preaching to the choir here. Don't need to show you skin lesions. Uh, intraorally, without a doubt, the most common site affected is buccal mucosa. It is usually somewhat bilaterally, symmetrically distributed. 
and right behind buccal mucosa is gingiva. It's really pretty rare to have patients with lichen who don't have some gingival involvement. And then it drops off. We can literally see lesions anywhere, but it does have a predilection intraorally. Uh, we appreciate this. Our stria are bigger than yours. And man, it's almost impossible. This to me is a straightforward clinical diagnosis. Fortunately for our patients, the striate or reticular variant is asymptomatic, so they may perceive a little textural change, but not a big deal. And again, almost always somewhat bilaterally symmetrical. And these just are 